This is not your mother's middle age. No longer is waking up each day, living the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle acceptable. We have the life lessons, the relationships, the wins, and the losses with which to navigate to our highest self without hesitation and without fear leading the way. We have been there and done that, and so we have so much to offer the world and each other. So join me on this journey speaking to ordinary women doing extraordinary things for new insights, new ideas, new medical breakthroughs, and new life lessons. You will be inspired to find your best life here and now. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire, and this is your Second Wind Podcast. Welcome, Second Wind. Here I am sitting with another awesome lady from Tampa, Florida. Her name is Jessica Conlon, and she is a mother, a daughter, a sister, a business owner, an entrepreneur, a triathlete, a musician, an entertainer, and a motivational speaker from behind her espresso bar of Jet City Espresso that she owns, which is her business in Tampa. And Jessica found her second wind very unexpectedly, doing something very unexpected. This is a little different than our normal turns and conversations we have on second wind. That's why I love it so much. And I think it's going to reach a lot of our listeners. And she had this unexpected kind of peacefulness hit her on the way home on an airplane. And her life is just such a whirlwind with so many twists and turns. And I really think a book should be coming. Actually, you need like 10 books. I took just for my listeners, I take notes. I do a pre-interview on everyone. I take notes and I go over it and I try to like decide how we should go forward and when that moment was. Jessica has 18 pages of notes because her life has so many cool little things that have brought her to where she is. So I'm excited to get started. So Jessica, welcome to Second Wind. Thank you, Wendy, so much. I know we've tried to do this so many times and I'm just so thankful that it was like, okay, we finally, we're gonna do it. Today. We're gonna do it. Yeah, and here's the problem. We tried to do it and then I had COVID and then we tried to do it again and then you had COVID. And then we tried to do it again and I simply forgot because I simply forgot. And then we tried to do it again. I'm like, oh, I got Lyme and I'm flying and I'm dealing with my mother. I still have Lyme, but I'm way better. So here we go. We're going to make it happen. This is so nice. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for, for all the time and effort you've put into this. Thank you. Ah, no, thank you. So let's start because I'm sure everybody wants to know. So you're flying home from Denver, Colorado to Tampa. What happened on this flight that changed well, your life? Yep. Yep. I'd been going through a really difficult divorce and it had been a matter of years, even though it was supposed to be settled. My ex-husband was having a difficult time settling, even though he, you know, with all the paperwork that the judge ordered, he wouldn't finish up with it. And so we kept going back and forth into court and it was now dragging on almost two years past the point of when we were supposed to be divorced. And I took this trip to Colorado and I was out there with just some very beautiful, sweet friends. And I just kind of had this peace come over me. I'm, I, I mean, the trip was beautiful. It was only for a few days and I flew home and on that flight home, I just felt this immense peace and weight lifted off of my shoulders. And I thought, I'm going to call Greg and 
I'm going to ask if he wants to meet with me because we really haven't spoken or, or met in years. I mean, it just seemed like we've seen each other in court and uh, it just wasn't amicable. The, our attorneys weren't, weren't very nice. You were on opposite ends. Yeah. And we, we just didn't have any conversation together. And so I got home and I texted him and I said, is there any way you would like to meet this weekend if you have time? And he said, yeah. So we met and we, it was the first time we sat down in five years. I mean, we held hands and we cried and I told him how sorry I was about everything. I didn't want us to have to go through any more of this arguing in court. And what was it that he wanted so that we could be finished so that we could go to what the judge had already ordered me for him to give to me. And uh, he stated what he wanted. And I said, fine, that's, we'll do it. Let's just be done. And it was the best thing ever. Both of us were at this wonderful agreement and we decided to meet at the bank the next day and start the ball rolling. And we finished up on our own, much to the, the disappointment. Oh, the lawyers. Attorneys. Yeah. Yeah. They don't get all the money they were planning on. Oh, they, you guys are fighting. Yeah. But they did not see the reconciliation between us happening. And uh, yeah, so that was a beautiful, that was my epiphany and my, my turning point of, of absolutely changing my life. And all of a sudden, everything that I had been struggling and contemplating over and over and as an empath, I was just so affected by it. I mean, I was drinking a lot. I was doing anything I couldn't always on my own by myself, you know, just to get through the next day and wake up and, you know, work and work and work and and just try to figure out what I was going to do. It just put an ending to all of that and gave me a rebirth. It was a rebirth. I loved it. That's it was so beautiful. interesting. Yeah. And it seems like, and I, and I learned this from Martha Bauer. She was on a few weeks ago that when you forgive, when you get rid of that bail shroud, whatever you want to call it, that blanket on top of you, we'll call it a weighted blanket. Cause those weighted are popular blanket. right now. Yeah. And you have a weighted blanket. And then when you lift that off, not only do you heal yourself, but whoever it is that you're having that animosity with, they're healed as well. And then I wonder now that I know this information and I've seen it happen in my own life, I wonder if that's why he was willing yeah. to meet with you. Do you know what I mean? Like he could have said no so easily. I, he could have. Were you worried that he was going to say no? Well, I was worried because I hadn't spoken to him in so long and I didn't know what he was going to be. Yeah, the fact that he even answered the phone, right? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. You know, and he was already remarried at that point. I mean, he got married the day after our divorce, but then still continued for a couple of years to drag me through more of honoring the agreement that was ordered. So anyway, just getting past that. And you're absolutely right. The forgiveness, because I needed to forgive myself too. I mean, I felt like I had failed our marriage because I didn't want to be with him anymore. I felt like, and also I was angry at him for also being part of failing our marriage and, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the, the fight through the divorce, which was just horrible. I mean, you never go into a a marriage loving somebody so much and just, you know, ever thinking down the road that you're going to be fighting for years to separate. Spitting bullets at each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my God, it wrapped it all up at that moment when I made that decision and it was just, it freed me. And I don't like, I have no anger towards him like I had before when I was so upset about things. I just realized all of that, just the forgiveness and 
my mom had taught me that a long time ago. She said, you know, the act, the most divine act is to forgive somebody for something that they have really wronged you for, instead of holding this anger towards them for the rest of your life or as long as you do it. Because she said it's so divine to be able to forgive. And she's absolutely right. I know many people also in my life that won't forgive somebody. And mm-hmm. a lot of it has to do with an ex or a divorce. And with that comes all that pain and anger. And I've said many times to them, you just have to forgive them. I know you don't want to, but you have to. That's the only way that you're going to move forward, that you are going to heal yourself. And we all hear this all the time, right? Forgive so that you can move on and you can feel better. But gosh, it's hard. And and there's a stopping block. Like, well, I can forgive. Like you can say, sure, I can forgive, but. Yeah. Right. There's always, always that but. Leave yourself I'll never out. Forget. <laughs> right, right. And you leave yourself an out, which prevents the actual healing from happening. Right, right. And that's so cool that something just, the universe just plopped it down on you and said, enough is enough, girl. We got bigger, better plans for you. Oh, yeah. Because you had already had such an expansive childhood in life. The, the go-getter that you are. Let's let's start off with that. First of all, you grew up in a very non-traditional American dream way. Yeah. And I said non because it's non. Yeah. <laughs> Share that a little bit. So I my dad was in the military and I was born in St. Louis. And when I was two and a half, we moved to Alaska. And I had two sisters at that time. And two more of my siblings after that were born in Anchorage. And so we grew up in a small, I mean, out in the country of Eagle River, which is just north of Anchorage. And we grew up on a farm. My parents were born and raised Chicago. My mom didn't even drive. You know, she didn't know how to drive. She learned to drive up there. But, you know, she didn't know anything about country life or, or sustaining yourself through winters in Alaska or, or what to do in the summers to, to prepare for the winters. And uh, Gosh, we I can't even imagine. Oh, no, it was, it was crazy. And she was so young. My mom and dad got married. She was 18 and my dad was 20. So by the time three of us were around, you know, now they're in their very early 20s. Wow. And they're trying to figure out, you know, a homestead in Alaska. So there was a beautiful lady up the road named Ruby Krause, and she was a very old lady and super wise, and she was a pioneer. So lived by herself, her husband had passed away, and she taught my mom which berries weren't poisonous, which ones you could pick and make into pies, how to make wine. And she taught my mom all about having rabbits and how to, rabbits are going to breed on their own. You don't even have to do anything, just put them in cages. And they will just keep multiplying. And so she taught us how to breed our rabbits to eat them. And she taught my mom how to oh God. to prepare oh God. that. But don't worry. But there were always, you know, grow and our chickens as well. We had chickens and we had fresh farm eggs and we had horses and cows. With that came wonderful manure for our gardens. And we had a beautiful, huge garden every year. And the the sunlight up there is 24 hours for a, a period of time in the summer. So your your vegetables are growing constantly at a 24 mm. hour for days they're growing with the sunlight and the super I never even thought of that that's interesting. yeah, yeah. the carrots are huge I mean all the vegetables are so big so big and then they're really sweet so I learned to love broccoli and cauliflower and brussels sprouts and you know all the things that are popular now but back then I just loved them because they were so sweet and delicious and we would 
you know, save all and all of that, where we would actually go sell. My mom would say, go ahead and, and pick the ones you want and go take them to the neighbors and see who wants to buy them for like 15 cents. Mm-hmm. It was really cute. But it was fun because I learned a lot about uh, growing something, you know, nurturing it and then reaping the harvest and then being able to go and sell it to neighbors. And they'd be like, oh, that's so beautiful. Those heads of lettuce are gorgeous. And, you know, it just was neat for us to, to learn what it was like to do something and then sell it and make money from that. Do you think that started the little entrepreneur bug in you? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, once I got a feel for that, you can make money and I could go to the store and use that to buy gum or ice cream or a piece of candy. Yeah. I was all about, Oh, where can I get more of this money? So yeah. Ah, yeah, Yeah. That, that was your, now your driving force. And then, but it wasn't always big old carrots and happy money. Was it? No, no, no. It was uh, my dad. My dad suffered a lot with uh, depression and also anxiety and having his business. So when he, he left the military to start his practice, which is what he learned in the army. And he was a dental ceramist and that practice was great. And he did a really good job with it, but he was really young and running a business. When you have employees, you have to have some experience. And he learned on the job experience and he learned a really hard way. And he got very hard way. Yep. Having, you know, employees not be honest with him or, or steal from him because he worked a lot with gold, a lot with gold. And uh, so that was really hard for him. And he just, he became a a wanderlust. He did take us all over uh, wonderful places in Alaska, but we would go back down to the lower 48 to see all of our relatives in Chicago. And he knew that we didn't want to be in the city. We didn't want to be in, in Chicago. It just wasn't for us. We were country girls. And so we ended up moving all over the place, Pacific Northwest, Montana. We kind of settled in Montana when we came down from Alaska. And that was beautiful. And we would travel across the States and go all the way down to Florida and in a motor home in the middle of the school year because my dad and mom would just take us out of school, get all our homework. And I remember thinking, even back then, I wish you could just teach us at home. I knew nothing about homeschooling. I mean, right. I'm 56, so. Yeah, we're the same. We age. didn't have homeschooling when I was six. No, I don't remember school. anybody. Like, it was a big deal if you had to miss school for three oh, yeah. or something. Absolutely. Getting the work, yeah. I and that. I remember thinking, I wonder if there's any way that you could just teach us at home, mom, so we could do these travels and go to all these places. Because we really did love traveling. But the hard part of being in school was that we went to a lot of different schools. Yeah. So I, before I even graduated high school, I went to 15 different schools and I went to five different high schools in one year alone, my sophomore year of high school. And it was, it was just really difficult, but it also taught me, oh God, it made me who I am today. Yeah. Resilience. Yeah. Right. And And, being able to plop yourself anywhere. Confidence. It gave me, it coming from a very insecure always being the new kid, never having friends until somebody wanted to friend me. Cause you don't go up to people at school when you're new and say, will you be my friend? You don't, you just kind of sit there by yourself. I realized that I easily did make friends and that was really a beautiful thing, but I still had those initial feelings of being by myself, eating lunch by myself or walking mm. by myself until I, I got to know some people, but I never wanted anyone to feel like that. So whenever someone new came to school, I immediately would go up and invite them into the crowd, immediately bring them into some friend circles 
because I didn't want them to go through that initial uncomfortable, insecure kind of way, you know? And so I learned even early on, mostly in high school, how to reach out to people and make them feel comfortable. One of the many reasons for this podcast is to collect, connect, and share information that will add to your life. It is my honor and pleasure to share products with you that I buy, use, and believe in that are high quality, sustainable, responsible to our earth, and that actually work. One product I have been using for almost a year now, every day, and now twice a day with the diagnosis of my Lyme disease is collagen. Collagen is a buzzword right now because collagen is a protein that makes up 30% of our bodies. And like everything else, as we age, we lose it. Fine lines, brittle nails, dull hair, achy joints, dry skin are all part of why collagen is so essential. So let me share why Elaine Collagen, the brand I use, is in my opinion more effective than what's out there on those shelves. It is easy to use, tasteless, and dissolves into any beverage. It's non-GMO, and it's from cows raised in Spain, and no chemicals are used for its extraction. Bingo, speak in my language. You can experience the benefits for yourself and receive 15% off by using the code SECONDWIND, all one word, at checkout at elainewellness.com. And if you want to know more about Elaine and her Second Wind story, listen to her episode. The title is Plot Twist. There's no such thing as anti-aging from March 15, 2021. Now, back to the episode. so insightful it's so hard for kids to do that it really you is tell them to but it's yeah and the fact that you did that's cool thank you and we didn't talk about it like back then you know what I mean when we were yeah. young we weren't all socially aware and, and conscious of how how everybody's feeling we weren't yeah we weren't so I mean often the new to person, you. thank you often the new person was the the object of ridicule and teasing mm-hmm. bullying and so yeah. I, yeah, I was bullied too, but I mean, getting over that and thank God I did. I just, Oh, that's what I, this is a good point. One of the things that helped me get over being a new person and being bullied or teased because I wore Bobby socks, which was very popular in the state I had just moved from, but not where I had moved to. Oh gosh. I never thought of that. Trends. Trends. Oh, and it's not like your parents had all this money to buy you the next best thing. Absolutely. No, we, your mom all. made your clothes for a long yes. time. My mother was incredible. She made our clothes, made our clothes ever since we were in kindergarten, probably before that, all the way through high school. I remember having my, my pictures at the different schools wearing my mom's, whatever my mom made me. And so getting to go to, I'll kind of get back to this, but being at so many different schools, I ended up with my last two years of high school in Chicago. And that's because my yeah. grandfather had passed away suddenly of a heart attack. I was only 16 when he passed away. It was so horrible for my mother. She, it was the most powerful person in her life. And she adored her dad so much and all of us did too, but he was pretty much the only real relative she had. She had a brother who later on became a very good, very back into our family, but not at that time. We moved back to Chicago, and so my last two years of high school were in Berwyn at Morton West School High School. It was actually really exciting because I got to go to the mall and buy clothes. I was wow. my yeah. mom. <laughs> you know, so that was kind of the, I'm just kind of going through the story of my mom yeah. making her clothes, getting to buy clothes, and, right. and because I'd gotten such a taste for working early, 
jobs that started even at nine years old. I would the paper routes and selling stationery door to door. Yeah, but you, I don't want you to forget this because it, it has been a huge part of your life and it actually helped your father for a little while is your art. Oh, that, that's what I was going to get at. There yes, I got it. I got you there, girl. Don't yeah. worry. Thank um, you. Absolutely. Yeah, the art, you started drawing and you started yeah. doing it young and that would be your refuge. Yes, that was my refuge. That was something that I could, when I was upset or being sent to my room because dad was angry about something, it had nothing to do with me, but it was always directed at me. And I would just go into my bedroom and start drawing and do my art, do my art. And I was always an artist ever since I was old enough to pick up a pencil. But it was a time that I really, it mentored me. It was my solace. It was, it just calmed me down and made me feel so good. And I would produce these beautiful pieces of art. They were never angry paintings or, or it was just almost like when I started drawing a portrait of something or somebody and I was very into Star Wars. So, and Lord of the Rings, so. I would be drawing those characters and I would just uh-huh. feel better. It was my medicine. Yeah. Your outlet. It was my outlet. Yeah. Yeah. And it ended up being such a beneficial moneymaker for me down the road. Yeah. Because yeah. didn't your mother take you, take him, take these pictures yeah. you did and turn them into stationery and you sold them. Yeah. And I sold and them. And you did well at it. I did very well at it. Yeah. <laughs> I did very well selling them. And uh, yeah, I, I still have some of the, the cards left because I oh, kept wow. them. But yeah, I sold uh, to Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. I sold them all over. We were in Mississippi for a while. And I remember that's where I made them was in Mississippi. And I sold them door to door in Mississippi. Um, because at that time, you could go door to door. Oh, yeah. Nobody really said, no, you can't do that. Um, I would get all these other commissions from selling the cards door to door. And then at some point, your father kind of enlisted your help to do the drawings. Yes. For the ceramics, correct? Oh, yeah. I, I helped my father in his lab when he was doing the dental, the licensurist. When he was making a tooth or a crown or bridges, I would do all the waxing and polishing. And yeah, the waxing was really creating the design of the tooth around wow. what so it would cool. be. Yeah. That's so cool. So then flash forward. What happens after that? Let's see. So you go to college. Well, before college, I start working at 14 oh, that's right. restaurants. We go back you to wanted Alaska. money. We I went money. back to the money. Yeah. So my dad wanted to move us all back to Alaska. And now we've, you know, we've been in Montana for a while and traveling still. Go back to Alaska and he needs money to bring the rest of the family up because now there's six of us children and I'm the mm. second oldest. So uh, I go to a restaurant called Lands and at the end of the Homer Spit, in Homer, Alaska. The Homer Spit is a four mile long, beautiful piece of, of land that's built by the sand being pushed by the waves and the current of the water, the ocean there. We had been going back to being a child. We had camped out on that spit. I remember even being three, three and a half, four years old, camping yeah. on that spit, having my first taste of crab, my first taste of a clam, my first taste of halibut on that wow. spit. And my memory does go really far back. So getting to go back there in 1979, I was 14 and getting to work there was like a dream come true. And I didn't want one day off. I worked double shifts. I was a maid in the daytime and they were such a busy resort and it was the summer. And then I would have maybe 45 minutes before I turned over and became a bus girl dishwasher. And I would be the last one to go to bed and the first one up in the morning vacuuming the bar and cleaning everything that, you know, from where the partiers and it was a uh, 
an incredible job. I loved it. I still just remember the, the nostalgia of that work. And it was so much work and I loved it. And I was a perfectionist. So my rooms were pristine. I found so much joy in just steaming and flattening the sheets in this big, wow. huge roller that probably could have like taken me into it, but I loved it. It was creative and something that I could just, I loved. I was accomplishing something. That was another thing. I needed to be an accomplisher. I needed to do something that had a result, a finished result, and it had to be perfect. So I, I started with that, always wanting to work early on, make money. I made very good money at that. And that's when we moved to Chicago and all the rest of that happened. But even in Chicago, I mean, then I start working at these amazing restaurants. And not only one of them is Farrell's Ice Cream Parlor in North Riverside. And um, I'm 16 and they make me the district weight trainer. So I go to all the other ferals training the, the weight staff. I'm 16 years old. 16 years old. I can't even imagine. And I loved it. And I was so detailed and it was just another thing. It's kind of like being a math, mathematician and doing a math project. And you've got all these, these formulas, but you're going to get to that answer. And for me, that's what it was like when I was teach, training people or learning a new restaurant. I just was so detailed about everything. I didn't leave anything out. And I was meticulous, meticulous. Every restaurant I worked at was that, that format was with me. So I learned things to the best. I mean, I was always just like, I needed to be perfect. So (laughs) Farrell's was amazing. And that just pushed me on to when we moved to Washington state, we had traveled out there between my junior and senior year. And I really, really wanted to stay in Washington state. We found this great campground that we were staying at. We met all these wonderful people. This was Monitor, which is next to Kashmir, Washington. The Kashmir is Applets and Cotlets, the home of Applets and Cotlets. Wow. That factory is gorgeous. And Wenatchee, which is the apple capital of the world. Now it's more vineyards, but back at that time, it was still all the orchards, apples and cherries and pears and Italian plums wow. and black walnuts. And I wanted so badly to just stay there and have my senior year with these amazing people I'd met and all these kids my age through the summer. And we ended up not getting to do that. And so disappointingly, we went back to Chicago where I had my senior year of high school. I still loved all the people I had there. That was a great school. And I loved working at Farrell's and everything. But as soon as I graduated and all that was done, I mean, literally, I I feel like the day after my graduation, we already had everything loaded up and we went back to Washington State and got our house. Well, four of my siblings at that time got to have all of their, the rest of the years of their school there. And so they really belonged in Kashmir. And I kind of missed that because I, but I did get to go to college. So my first two years of college were with all the people I wanted to go to my senior year with. So I had a really, yes, that was also a really great experience for me because I got to be on student Senate. I got to be a coordinator of things, which also I was really good at organization. I mean, that's why I was a district weight trainer at 16 years old, working for Marriott, you know, it was like, Mm -hmm. that was a big deal. And here I am now 18, 19 at the college and also my arts. I had a scholarship. I had all this money given to me, which was really, really great for them wanting me to go to school there. That was a junior college because I was paying out of state tuition. Ah, okay. But I loved it. It was some of my best years ever of any school whatsoever growing up and high school and the rest of my, my four years at another major university after those two years. 
I loved it. It was so much fun and it was great organizing all the things I did and being on student Senate and doing my art. And I loved it. That part of Washington state is just breathtaking. And then I had to go to the university of Washington in Seattle. So I moved to Seattle and I, I, this is the first time I'm really separated from my sister, Jackie, who's just a year younger than me. And she was my best friend. She said, I said, okay, I'm going to find a place for us in Seattle. So you and I can get an apartment. We'll go to the UW together. And she goes, well, I'm kind of thinking I'm going to go to Central Washington University. I was just shocked and I was heartbroken because I really felt like I needed her with me because she had experienced all of our life together and all the moving we had done. And when you have a best friend that's been with you through Alaska, uh, Montana, gosh, all these places, back Chicago, and forth, back and forth. Central, Southern Illinois, Mississippi. In the mobile home with you. Oh, in that too. Mobile yeah. home. Oh God, that was, yeah, we, we yeah. just had so many experiences. I look back at it now and I just think, wow, I, I think a normal person, well, there is no normalcy. That is your right. normalcy. And That's as you're normal. growing, you don't put your foot down and go, I don't want to do this because you have no experience outside of it. You just go, okay, well, this is what we do. This is right. You're, you're yeah. being present. Yes, present. Exactly. And I also feel like that bond with my family, my, my siblings, definitely with my mom. I mean, I love my dad so much now, but I had a really hard time, difficult time respecting and loving him when I was younger because of, of several instances and things. But my mom was just like this steadfast, just the pillar of our rock, family. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was the rock. And I also was a huge responsible adult in our family because all of my siblings under me you know, I had to take care of them too. So I love large families. I think that is just a, a beautiful way to grow up and have, have really beautiful siblings. We're all such best friends. We have a group thread every day, all day long. Oh my gosh. That's they so live, they live in California and Washington and Minnesota and Montana. And I'm all the way here in Florida and we still just communicate every day. So I love that. Right. So let's flash fast forward. You ended up you then went to your four-year school. And where does this, were you, you were studying art there at the four-year I double school? majored. I got a biological science degree and a fine arts degree. That was really hard. Even though I had spent two years at a junior college, I mean, I knocked out all those prerequisites and right. then went straight into double majoring because I wanted to go for medical illustration. Well, my father wanted me to go for medical illustration. Okay. I wanted to be a fashion designer. Okay. But I really, you know, I knew that's what he wanted me to do. So I was going to be pleaser, you know, the obey father. There was no program for that at, in any of the universities, really. You had to double major. And this is pre-computer. Right, right, so right. So the computers were just starting to come into effect more in the late 80s. And I graduated in 89 from college. Yeah, you're and my I both remember, Yep. And when I, when you know, 88, 89, the computers were definitely coming into the scene. I knew that my degrees for medical illustration were going to be. Oh obsolete. yeah. And I thought I cannot go to school any longer, but I knew I needed to go two more years just to learn computer illustration. And they didn't even have that. I knew it was going to happen. I knew the computers were going to become the ability to illustrate and three-dimensional. This is all be for any of that technology even came out in the computer. That's really interesting. Why yeah. do you think you knew that? I, it's crazy. I started working on computers in high school. We had this, this floppy disk, crappy little ones. Uh -huh. 
um, in my accounting class. And that was just very archaic. But I was like, God, it could be so much faster. It could be doing this and this and this. And I remember people looking at me and they go, I can't believe you even know what you're doing on there. And I go, well, it just, it's really, it should be better. It's like a tiny robot and it's not doing, it could do so much more. And then in college, we had um, a couple Mac, Macintosh. And I remember diddling around on that. And I was like, God, it can do this. It can do that. But, you know, drawing on it wasn't even a thought. It's still like the, the silly typing of watching like war games, the movie war games. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember walking past the computer science labs, like wanting to throw up in my mouth. I hated, I, I hated it. I hated computers. I hated everything about it. Yeah, that's interesting. And you're I mean, like, here I am trying at- to redesign it while you're in there. Oh yeah, and I, I mean, I knew even when I graduated, I really knew my. I had a friend that worked for Microsoft who also tried to get me to buy stock in it when I was 21, and he goes, "Whoops." He goes, really, it's going to be a great company. I'm working at this company called Microsoft. And I think it'd be really good if you could buy shares in it. I just bought my first two shares and I went, oh God, I'm sleeping in a sleeping bag on your floor. I'm such a broke college student. I don't have money for that. And I really, to this day, I remember that and think, what if I bought stock in 1980? Oh, but that's part of your mantra. We'll get to later. You're fighting with computers. Yeah. What happens when you get out of school? Oh, well, this is great. So I figure I'm going to have to go two more years to, to learn how to work on computers because I know that's going to become the new illustration. And mm-hmm. I just knew it. I knew that's what was going to happen. And Seattle was so progressive. So for us, handheld computers, uh, working on POSs, point of sale systems in Seattle at restaurants were high end. I never saw them anywhere else in the U.S. like I saw in Seattle. It was just okay. great very smart and um, technology. So I'm bartending, opening cafes. I'm opening lots of cafes all over Seattle. Espresso cafes was just something I had a passion for and I loved. Graduating college and choosing not to go two more years and spend all that money to get something computer science, I just went, I'm done with school. I'm going to work and open shops and do all this other fun stuff and put on these art shows. I'm going to do other stuff. I'm not going to be a medical illustrator because I worked on cadavers, even though I got the biological science degree. And today makes so much sense when I think about COVID and everything, but which gives me a lot of ammunition to also mm. be able to discuss with people about COVID and antibodies and other important factors that you learn when you're doing biological science. So right. I'm thankful for that. I didn't practice it after I left, you know, but, but I did use it in other certain ways. I opened up all the cafes and everything. And then I was... <laughs> I was working one day a week across the street from where the NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration ships were moored in Seattle, right on Lake Union. And this was a really great restaurant. I was a, I was a bartender there one night a week. And all of these people, crew members would come off the ship when any of the ships came in port. And they would come in and tell me these great stories about, I mean, one of them went to Alaska, actually were three of them that went to Alaska. And then one big one that went to Hawaii, and they knew a lot of the people on that boat. And then one big ship, class one, I mean, they're 360 feet long, to Antarctica. And it oh, went wow. to South America and Antarctica. And I just got this wild notion that I, I'd been to Europe once, and I was there extensively for several months, and I loved it so much. And I thought, I want to travel. You know, travel. this is what you do when you graduate college. You're like, I'm 
I'm going to do all the fun stuff I want to do. And then you're like, I'm going to travel. So I applied with Noah. I did not get on that ship, but I ended up on a ship, the best one in the fleet, in my opinion, in Minnie's opinion, on the Noah ship Rainier that went to Alaska. And because I said, I grew up in Alaska, I'll go up there and sail. I'd love this. So I, I could have come on as a survey tech or even a yeoman or even entry level because of my college degrees, but I wanted to be on the deck department. I wanted to Jessica, work. How many women? Um, not a lot. They were doing this, right? Okay. So the ship had about 65 people on board and I would say about 15 or 16 were females and they needed to have a ratio of females on there because it was a government ship mm-hmm. and they needed to have that fair, you know, opportunity. So when they were hiring and I could have went into any other because they could have hired somebody else to be deck maybe, but I said, I wanted the deck department. And they said, well, we need another female on the deck department. At that time, there was only two other girls. So I came on the deck, was trained from scratch. And I was actually told by several of the women that said, you're not going to last. You're not, you're not cut out to be merchant marine or, or sail on this ship. You're, you're just not. And I said, oh, I, I can't believe you judge a book by its cover. I don't know if I, if I was a threat to them or something, but nope. And I stayed, I was on there for four years. And after your first, the Coast Guard documents your sea time. You get these Coast Guard papers that prove how long you've sailed. And after you sail 360 sea days, you qualify to uh, take your AB license through the Coast Guard or, or affiliated Coast Guard approved. And you can become an able-bodied seaman. So you enter as an ordinary seaman, then you become an able-bodied seaman and then a seaman surveyor up the ladder to like quartermaster and up the ladder. So I became a merchant. I mean, I got my AB license after my first year. It was really, really cool. And Noah was great about anytime we came back in port, I could take off and travel around the world if I wanted. And I did. I mean, I ended up after that first year of sailing, I went to the Netherlands for a month and a half and stayed with my sister. And then I came home for two days and then flew to Taipei, Taiwan for three weeks and then Thailand for another month. And then I came back to the ship and sailed out. So that was, I spent that time traveling, but the next year, I I think actually I got back in time to still go through the training for EMT and firefighting. And so I ended up having that training and all the extra classes. I know that was because the, the NOAA ships have to multitask the people on board. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Your biggest threat at sea is a fire, right? Biggest threat. You know, we had to be trained for that. And I loved it. And I, my BGL, my Boston group leader was always like, I'm going to sign you up for this class. Let's do this class. Let's do this class. So every time we were back in Seattle, I could spend all these weeks just studying and taking classes. It was amazing. So to me, it was like, you liked that. You liked that. I already had a challenge two degrees from college. And this was like getting a third degree. Right. And I did, I was a perfectionist. So everything to me on the ship had to be done right. And I was really, I was meticulous. And even the captain, I, there were two captains that I sailed with, but one that I sailed the majority of like three of my years, Captain Arnold was so wonderful. And he always picked me to take him out another survey tech to go explore the areas that we were going to go chart. So he's like, I want Jessica as my coxswain. She's going to take us out. Oh, wow. and yeah. And he would put me on the helm of the ship in this most dangerous passages. I was like, oh my God. But I, once again, when you don't know anything different, you just you follow it. the orders and you just go with it. So I'm like, oh, wrangled and arrows. All right. You know, that's some of the most treacherous currents. 
to do a, an inside to outside passage is crazy, but yeah. Did you meet your husband? I did. While, while you were doing, oh, okay. Yep. Yep. So I was into my third year when, or second year on the ship when Greg came on board as an ensign. It was my second, maybe two, no, second or third year. I remember meeting him and, and the other uh, officer that came on with him and the XO had to introduce me to them right away. And I remember looking at him going, oh, he's going to be trouble on board. He's just good looking, you know, that. It was, it was kind of love at first sight, really, or, or like at first sight. That was in Juneau, Alaska. So I met him there. We were friends. I, I, I had a big, I had a really important goal for myself on the ship, and it was not to fraternize. I would not mm. jeopardize my position and have any of those naysayers that thought I wouldn't last on the ship. I was, uh, I was going to earn their respect. So I worked really hard at everything. I worked really hard to be a good person and not fraternize and not go out with any of anybody on the ship. And I was asked mm-hmm. by many, and I still said no. And I love that because I could be friends with everybody. And once they got to know that I was a really hard worker and that I meant what I meant, I ended up having great friends. Everybody, I mean, so many great friends on the ship. And uh, well, I did meet Greg in about a year after we started dating. And then seven months later, we got married. So you, must have got, you got off the ship then. I did. I had to get off the ship. We got married right after that. The captain came to our wedding. Several our mates on the ship came to the wedding. It was beautiful. And I was already pregnant. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, that was, and we were married. I mean, I know we're divorced now, but we had a really amazing marriage for a really long time. A good, good time. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think, and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, Go ahead and breathe in your second wind.